hard to find a good bit of the pod to put into a cold opening when one of the films was so bad it hurt my feelings. I guess enjoy an extended musical intro. Hello and welcome, everybody, to another episode of the End Podcast, where we talk about good films, good comics, and sometimes some TV shows, and today, a bad film. But which one's it going to be? <laughs> because today we're talking about It Lives Inside, and we're talking about Sorks, or Sorks, hence to the uninitiated. <laughs> we are... The End Podcast. You can find us on all your favourite listening locations. We have an Instagram and a Twitter, the end underscore pod. Now, I want you to hit that subscribe button right now because as you can see, I'm an enthusiastic fellow. And I think you can't fault a man for being enthusiastic. So hit that subscribe, hit the like and all that kind of nonsense. You can always unfollow us. You can just give us a sympathy follow. I'm begging you. Please, baby, touch the button. But without further ado, I am here with my regular co-host. How are you, Tim? Oh my God, dude, I'm great. You know, listeners, I don't know how other podcasts work, but uh, we have just chat before we start recording. And I might propose we just put those chats out into the world (laughs) because they're fucking gold. But I'm great. How are you? <laughs> no, that's good. I don't think we have enough subscribers to get cancelled. But I think it's probably <laughs> best that we do keep so we do hold the uh, you know keep <laughs> kind of. Oh, we should do just, a Patreon. We should do a Patreon where we have just start show. Just retract <laughs> the envelope a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Before we push it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh dear. So I can't. I, can, I absolutely have a blunt mind, Tim. That's I'm. <laughs> I fucking think of a single word to say. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> uh, are you looking forward to talking about these two films? Yeah, I mean, there's stuff to talk about. These they're not all good. Um, yeah, but it's good to talk about a bad film from time to time. You know, we pick movies that turn out to be pretty good, and so it's good to talk about good films or at least interesting ones. But we don't often talk about a film that's like straight bad. Yeah. Um, We've had a pretty good run. I think it's just from watching so many films, you do have, you start to have not like a sixth sense, but you do know how to sniff out a stinker. Pretty quickly too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty fucking quickly. <laughs> but we've got a little off the top because we do talk about A24 quite a bit and there's been a development with them over the last week, but more so over the last 18 months or so. A24 started around 2013. It had a little bit of seed investment at the time to get them up and running. And they've pretty much run the course of being the biggest independent filmmaker, an absolute powerhouse. It's kind of a, it's a gold stamp of approval before they even release a trailer. Anything that they bring out is generally looked forward to and held in critical regard. The good thing that people always stand by is with A24, They basically make a lot of small films that don't need to turn too much of a box office run to become fiscally rewarding. So they're able to attract directors and they're able to attract technical staff and actors, you know, on and off screen talent to projects they probably wouldn't usually go for for the amount of money that's on offer especially the running horror films one of the most recent ones taught to me i think it's probably still one of my favorite films of the year because it didn't only focus on the scares and you know the boogeyman under the beds it was a real inspection on grief and and whatnot 
there's a whole episode on it anyway, so you can go and check that out if you want to hear about it. So about 18 months ago, an investment firm called Stripes bought 10% of A24 for $225 million. The company was valued at $2.5 billion. One of the expectations of that investment was Ken Fox, who is one of the partners for Stripes, is now on the board of A24. And in the last seven days, there was an announcement that A24 are going to be producing or start producing IP films and try and get their toes into the blockbuster market. For me, it could go one of two ways. It can bring A24 closer to the mainstream, which I think goes against everything they we thought they stood for, or it could pull the mainstream closest a24 for example if you were to have let's say valerian or let's say spawn or something like that you would rather mm. a24 are in charge of making those films because they would be closer to how you would expect them to be made ghost in the shell was another one if they're getting into ips like that however if it's to try and catch the coattails of a part of the filmmaking industry that's actually showing considerable depreciating returns is it going to dilute their brand it, it's a real tricky one i find this to be disappointing and yeah I do. I, I, my view of it matt is that it's likely to be the former it's likely to pull a i mean just think of who's in charge you know i think it's likely to pull them closer to the mainstream which is just such a disappointment they thrive so much on original filmmaking one-off filmmaking that has had an impact like that is emboldened or driven other small presses like let's say neon mm. i would imagine they count a24 as an inspiration or as like a model like anything else when you start focusing on ip and blockbusters and fucking franchises it just dilutes the whole thing i i don't know i mean i guess if anybody's going to try this i would trust them with it i mean if they can't pull it off it can't be pulled off I guess. And it'd be disappointing if they end up like, if we end up effectively losing them. So I'm a little mm. nervous. Having Ken Fox on the board doesn't say how many voting seats there are existing. And with the addition of Ken Fox, Ken Fox may have come with three voting chairs. It is disappointing. My initial reaction was complete revulsion because it feels like the biggest after school club that you could ever be a part of. Mm -hmm. And we've had. 10 years of supremely executed films and it saddened me because I'd, they were used as the benchmark of why does hollywood need to have 250 million dollar production budgets that need 800 to break even wouldn't you be better doing yeah. eight smaller films and making a bit of profit on each of them but because of the shareholder model you always need to earn more money to keep the dividends coming to increase the share price. So there's always yeah. a pressure to go bigger and bigger and bigger to get more and more profit. That year where Disney through its various studios of having $8 billion films in one year, that isn't where films are anymore. Those big IPs are, you know, Fast and the Furious, the Pixar stuff, the recycling of Disney IP. I mean, Aladdin made a billion. You think of yeah. the way that the MCU is going, the way that the gap between Infinity War and Endgame pulled up Captain Marvel and Aquaman to being billion-dollar films. We're, that's not the shape of the landscape anymore. There's been failure after failure after failure because people were prepared to hang on the coattails of the last success with IPs like Fast and the Furious. Star Wars hasn't had a film in a heck of a long while. So... You question the reasoning behind it. If all they're doing is upping their production budgets from between, say, five and 25 million, the most expensive film they ever made was Bo is Afraid, and that cost about 35 million. No chance. It was a complete glory project. It was Ari Aster, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Wacky Phoenix? Was yeah, it? Yeah. 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 So I, I never saw that film because I just found the thought that it would be too intense. It's actually been largely recategorized as a horror film now. You know, I haven't seen it. I missed it. I, it might have a very short run um, did, here. Yeah. I want to see it. I'm interested in it. It was over double 
the previous production budget that A24 have done. So maybe they're simply looking for that flexibility to go up to the 100 million. But if we look what the Northmen failed to achieve, made by Focus, distributed by Universal, the production budget of that was something like 70, 80 million. So just using a factor of three with cinema cuts and also advertising, you're talking about that needing to be a 300 million film. And that was like a big budget indie film, really. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And even that fell flat. It's concerning to me. If we're saying it's in addition to everything that they have been doing, then okay, Mm -hmm. we still have what we love and we don't have to pay any attention to the rest of it. However, looking at what the MCU did when it went from cinematic to episodic, TV mm-hmm. there's a big stretch there and can the resources necessarily match that I don't know it's worrying I'm only thinking the amount of failed IPs let's say for example Deadly Class let's say for example because they've really been pushing into TV as well haven't they with things like Euphoria A24 mm-hmm. so if you think of the way Deadly Class only made one season, great TV. The way that Outcast only had two seasons, the Robert Kirkman ad- adaptation. If we're saying they're going to take indie comic IPs, for example, and then turn them into a sustainable TV series, I can be on board with that. But when you hear, if they just said IP exclusively from Blockbuster, it's when you hear IP and Blockbuster in the same sentence that it Oof, becomes incredibly yeah. concerning. Even if it succeeds, assume that that's what it is, and they want to develop IP in the way that we think of IP. Let's say it succeeds. Well, great, that's nice, except at that point, what is the point then for them to make a film like The End of the Tour, the, little, the David Foster Wallace film that was just a one-off, a beautiful movie about his last tour promoting the book Infinite Chess, like a great movie, a one-off, like a small story. So if even if it succeeds, you're just, I can't imagine they're going to make a movie like that also, you know? It's like that stuff just gets left behind. I feel they almost have to do a division of labor and, and almost have two, two production companies with I know. people running each. I have so many questions about it. It makes me a little anxious thinking about it. Succinctly, my view is... The danger is not that it fails. The danger is that it succeeds and that you lose the stuff that we love because there's going to be no incentive to make those movies anymore. Just like the entire economic you know, model of, of films entirely. Like we always complain, there's no mid-market dramas. You just don't see those anymore. They're, they're very unusual. It's either like IP, maybe a comedy. You know, There's a whole category of films we just don't have anymore because of that economic move towards IP filmmaking stands to reason that the same forces would affect this. And so that is just so sad. I mean, you know, whatever, we'll see how it goes, but I don't know. I don't know. The only working example we have is Fox and Fox Search. Like, I don't know, but if they come back and they say the first three things that they want to adapt are Transmetropolitan, Department of Truth and The Sixth Gun or something like that, then that's going to be a good indicator of what their intentions are. But And what do they mean by blockbuster? Are they going to try and create something like Fast and Furious, where where they start from scratch, but they just make an extended universe with some, I I don't know, I, I don't know. If they did like a Black Hammer, that'd be a good example. Although that would be adapting something. That's the kind of thing that would be interesting. Like Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. So if it was something like that, then great. What I don't want is when I think it was Universal paid 400 million for The Exorcist to make a trilogy of films. So many questions, Tim, not enough answers at this point. We'll probably start to see it 2025. Well, here we go, I guess. Enjoy 2024, people. That's what we're saying. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Oh, dear. So let's get on to the first film of the two that we're going to be discussing today and that is Tim Bishal Dutta who wrote and direct It Lives Inside with a relatively new cast of unknowns who have had 
little parts or the, the voice acting in the past, but a largely unknown cast. So I wouldn't bother going through them. Um, the lead is Megan Surrey. And I will kick off by saying this is comfortably in one of the 10 worst films I've ever watched. <laughs> Just I like despicably bad. But Tim, what were your thoughts on the film? My thoughts on it were, I remember months ago, we circulated the trailer for this amongst us, the several of us on uh, text. And I was so yeah. fucking pumped for this because A, it's neon. So you're like, okay, there's an imprimatur of quality attached to that. Yeah, it looked yeah. like a really interesting concept, a leading cast of South Asian actors. And so it's like, fuck yeah, this could be dope. So I was very much looking forward to this and it is just fucking terrible. I don't think it's like one of the 10 worst films I've ever seen, but definitely one of the handful of worst films I've seen in the last five years, certainly. It's just such a disappointment. I was really looking forward to this one. And it absolutely sucks. I watched the first half an hour in bed and it opens in a way that piqued my interest, but quite soon into it, it started stinking the place out. And I thought, mm -hmm. I'm not staying up till two, half two in the morning to watch this shit. And then I watched the next hour in the gym while I was on the treadmill. And then I watched the remaining half an hour of it when I was in the shower. That's how little interest I had in it. I thought I, I know what, where this is going. The incredibly repetitive, the listless script wasn't yeah. going to be done any damage between you know me washing my bollocks and brushing my teeth, <laughs> keeping an eye on it. This is the film that is the product of taking all the shit that could have been in talk to me, avoiding trope, avoiding expectation, avoiding jump scares and all that kind of thing. They took all that shit and then they just dumped it into this script. Incredibly repetitive, incredibly predictable. It was at the point of the gym, there was a moment where they do a close-up to a head and it's in a darkened corridor or a darkened fucking whatever I went, there's a jump scare coming in 10 seconds. So I just took my headphones off my ears and put them at the base of my skull, waited for the jump scare, and then I put it back on. Every artistic and technical discipline was absolutely appalling. The relationships and the acting was wooden. The script was terrible. There was horrendous cinematography. It lacked a complete understanding why shots work. We were very complimentary about 30 Days of Night that we did with Joe. How it chose to use dolly shots, about how it used shortened one-take shots to really give you a feel of the claustrophobia or the, the distant insecurity of their situation. And it was so profoundly accurate in its use. This lacked, again, any understanding of why those shots work. It had obligatory Dutch angles that I think it's stolen from Skinnamarink. The quick cuts that Talk To Me used, especially in the hellscape, where you, it was so quickly edited that you couldn't quite put your finger on it. There was these slow panning shots that are chapter and verse taken from films like Get Out, where it kept on panning on fucking door handles for the first half an hour. Now I'm thinking, like a doorway okay it's a fucking doorway you have to open the doorway with a handle either this is the most pathetic metaphor i have ever fucking seen in my life or they just don't get how you build tension get out was yeah. all about slow panning shots on everyday occurrences a sprinkler on a lawn for example is the one that i immediately think of because it was the mundanity and the slow-paced nature of everyday life in juxtaposition to the the horrific that was occurring in the film this was it was kind of like a graphic design project for a gcse which is like 16 year olds even then i would guess having seen the philippus twins that did mm -hmm. talk to me this 16-year-olds that would have edited, cut, shot, directed everything better than this film. It was just such 
an obnoxious misuse of everything. They either fell flat on the things they were trying to achieve or the things they did achieve, I've seen so many times, it was actually, this is a film that needed an editor or a producer to come in and say, there has to be a better film than this. There has to be. Yeah. Like I said, every <clears throat> on and off camera discipline in this was shit. The um, <laughs> <laughs> I love horror films. I love being scared. I'm a sucker. I'm very amenable to all the tropes. Like I love a jump scare. I love other types of scares. Right. This is so poorly executed. It cannot even pull off a jump scare. Like it can't. It there's nothing scary in this movie because not because conceptually it's not scary, but because it's so fucking poorly executed. Yeah. Like you're saying, like. Jump scares, there's a technicality, a well-understood way of executing a jump scare. This fails completely. Yeah. It's like they never seen one before. Yeah. And the other thing that, I, that pissed me off about this movie is that it had such an opportunity to be interesting, like, like thematically. So much, so you know, much like, same. you have, like, themes about potential, about generational yes. conflict. You have themes about the immigrant experience in America. But if you strip all that shit away, like, so the, the monster in this, like the girls in this are, are, are of Indian descent and the monster is like an Indian monster, fucking monster. And you, to, to capture it and do other things, you have to perform Indian ceremonies and stuff. If you strip all that away, nothing about this movie changes. Nothing about that nothing. has any nothing. effect on the fucking movie. No. It's just like it slapped on top. It would have been so interesting, but they just, it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters in this movie. Nothing. And on top of that, the trailer promised us a deconstruction of teenage loneliness and being an outsider. And yeah. that how the entity, I will get onto that in a minute, <laughs> how it latched onto the lonely, loneliness, the disassociation of an outsider teenage girl. They didn't lean onto her race. Like there was very, very easy. And I've criticized it for being easy, but all the girl did was walk around, shuffling around, and that was it. No racism. Like I said, we were promised a film where it was preying on the loneliness of a young girl and that it fed on that and acted as a catalyst. There was no acting out. There was no out-of-character scenes. It didn't set any character norms to undermine them. The yep. whole familial relationship was so wooden. I grew up around oh, in Leicester. It was noted, is noted for, well, I won't tell you the derogatory term that used to be able to be said on the terraces. We That was a popular away fans chant against Leicester City. And then all the Indian fans would basically stand up and give him the Vs. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't say it was done in good faith because the 80s and 90s, let's just say that's a part of them that I'd like, I'm glad to see the back of. Anyway, the point being, I grew up around Indian households. I was in and out of them when, you, when I came back to Leicester in the summers and we'd go to their houses. You'd try their food and you'd get to yeah. know the culture. And there's such a strong family bond. And it's very much a patriarch and a matriarch in the old-fashioned way that, that the patriarch is more quiet, resolved, gets the work done, but he's the head of the family. The mother is so maternal. The family is so maternal and loving, and not just to her family, the extended family, uh, which includes all the friends and, and anybody that was, uh, that was involved with the family like this. I'd go there and I'd be treated like a son. And that's not in one house, that's any subcontinental house that I'd go into. Across the road from where my mum is now, in lockdown, because I was on my own, they would speak across the road. Bloody hell, I felt myself getting emotional then. <laughs> and they would literally bring me bowls of food. This is completely contrary to the yeah. subcontinental family, to the point where it actually angered me more than if there was actual racism. And I don't want to go into yeah, like yeah. microaggressions, but they've basically used a skin figuratively not literally to create something that is niche but they've done it with such a lack of execution they actually made it and incredibly poorly as well the archetypal 
dysfunctional American family. And the whole yeah, thing, totally. the, the whole argument towards the end where she said, why did you bother coming here if all you're going to do is just stay in here and cook and clean? Yep. And it's like, that's just bullshit. That is like the bratty American teen. You could say, well, maybe it's a comment on, you know, the dilution of culture when it comes to metropolitan America. But that isn't yeah. what it was trying to do. That is right. trying it can't, to it find... It couldn't pull that it, off. It was fucking appalling. From my experiences, I was insulted as a white person. <laughs> and, you know how I don't like, and you know how I don't like to talk about that sort of stuff on the podcast, because we're, we're about films, we're about comics, we're about, you know, media and nerd culture and all that. And I think there's people more qualified to talk about it than me, and we'll never get it 100% right, and we'll never be able to even keep half the people happy. So I just don't have it on the podcast, because what's the point? And we've had some pretty shitty things over the last four years when it would have been easy to go down that route. Anyway, the point being, this annoyed me so much because this is my personal experience of growing up in Leicester. Honestly, mate, it wasn't just bad. And I'd say the only way this film could have been worse if it had an established cast and an established writer-director. Because then it would have have squandered that on top of squandering the opportunity that this this provided the film is is offensive in every respect i mean every respect technical thematic execution i did like the lead though she she was good given what she had was allowed to do let's get on to the actual monster yeah yeah let's talk about the monster okay it couldn't decide it couldn't decide whether it was a physical monster, a, a spectre, a folklore manifest, and all it ended up being was this convoluted and completely generic malform. There was a part at the end of the film where there's a chase sequence that's going through this the school, and all I'm thinking is, if you take out the demon or whatever it was, and you just put a big dog there, <laughs> does it change anything? totally just a big dog in fact that would be more scary because i could relate to it yeah fully (laughs) fully do what i thought this was going to be like a light-hearted piss take but i'm genuinely (laughs) angered by this film so you don't get the reveal of the monster until later in the film but but the monster's there and abducting like the original girl, girl tamira i think is her character's name who has the jar she's like basically abducted by the, this monster mm. and kind of slowly tortured in a sense and you, you see it a little bit but you never see the monster at that point but are we supposed to be scared by that there's like little growls murmurs of the monster like like you would see on a fucking saturday morning cartoon like yes how is yes. that that is not fucking scary it's comical it's like if they it's- were trying to make a parody of a saturday morning cartoon that's what this would be poorly executed was it a physical monster that could turn itself invisible or was it a spectral ghost-like demon thing that's in another realm? It didn't seem to know which one it was during the film. Yeah. With that note, they can't even get what its motivations are. Okay, it's a demon, so it's evil. Like, tick that box. So they say it feeds off somebody and it can be trapped in uh, any vessel. So implying that a person can be a vessel, which is never fulfilled later on in the script. So it has to be contained. And so the young girl, the first one, what's her name? Tamira, I think. She has it in the bottle, but it's becoming too powerful. She keeps feeding it raw meat because it likes to eat raw flesh. Well, did you think about just not fucking feeding it? (laughs) Right. Just stop feeding it and keep it in the glass bottle. She has to fucking open the jar to put the meat in. Like, why is it? Made no sense. It made no sense whatsoever. And then, and one of the things as well that we, and we were talking about one of the best films of the year and one of the best recent horror films, but this is the standard we have now. We've had Evil Dead Rise, which was a great utilization of IP, which might be what uh, A24 might start doing. (laughs) (laughs) But, but we said it didn't have to lead you through all the steps. There was the mystery. 
is actually what added to the tension stack of nobody knows what's going on. So they were flailing. There was a little bit of video footage at the beginning, but that was like a preamble for us, the viewer, to know what to expect when they were pissing about with the hand in the film. So we knew when the hand came out, they're in danger. Whereas, yeah. whereas with this, and one of the things that hold my hand, whatever it was called, talk to me. <laughs> well, what that did, what it didn't do was the long road trip or the long bus trip to wherever to find the old man that says, you have to yeah. leave it alone. You have to leave yeah. it alone. And in this, they do exactly that. They get in the car, they go over to the house, they have a look around, and all they do is see some writing on the wall. And him, and with the thing with like the cinematography, the last, the way we don't see it is completely stolen from the Babadook. And then the way you have the final reveal was completely like how Smile, which is far from perfect, but that's how Smile did it. And you know what? When I saw the monster at the end of Smile, I shit my britches. It was fucking terrifying. But I looked at this and I was like, this looks like the fucking retarded second cousin of the Demigorgon from Stranger Things. It was comically, comically, pathetically unscary. Oh, brutally unscary. And I'm easily scared. I can't believe this movie. They should teach this movie in film schools about what to not do. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Talk to me one day <laughs> and then this the next. This is how you do good. This is how you do bad. Yeah. yeah. And, and can I just say, on the familial conflict as well, the mum's this strong, what's wrong with you? You're making the family look bad kind of thing. And then the whole thing with the girl is, I, yeah, I don't want to tell anybody. You won't believe me. And it's kind of retreading the steps to the callback of the girl that had it before. If I tell you, you've got to believe me. What? lazy lazy sort of law of three and then the mum from being hypercritical of every single misgiving throughout the film it's massive crisis disowning you she says that there's a demon following her and she has to put it in a jar and by the way that fucking trope got so fucking comedic throughout the film to start with it was the poor girl with the demon in the bottle but then when it became the the core celebra of the film i just thought this is just hilarious chasing a demon with a fucking glass jar get the fuck out <laughs> of town so then the mother the mother the mother at, at that point turns around and says oh no, okay yeah no we're, we're friends now yeah i'll definitely help you catch a demon in a jam jar what? Why? Right. What is her motivation? Are you, are you, I, I just, every in front and behind the camera discipline of this film, it is, it's insulting. It's insulting. I wonder, like, did you look at reviews of this? Is everyone, does everyone hate this movie? This should have been the red flag, but I was actually trying to find a third film for us to talk about. And I couldn't find anything that I was sure would be a really good film without having to go back too far there was a really good found footage one called area 52 that i'd watched a little while ago but i just thought I'd, I'd like to find something that was on shudder or something like that for this year but i couldn't find anything and when i started to doubt this film was when i went on youtube and none of the mainstream reviewers had even touched it so that should have been a massive red flag it's yeah just well, I mean, I think I've exhausted my criticism. I think that pretty much covers it. What a pile of shit. This could be the standard, truly. Like, I, I don't, I'm not even joking. Like, they could teach this. How to not execute a horror film. It's that bad. It's sublimely bad. <laughs> Pathetic. Pathetic. That's enough on that one. Now to a film that I did actually quite like. Yeah. It is Saw X. And it was directed by Kevin Grutert that edited the first five 
Saw films, and he also edited this one. He also directed, I think, a couple of the good ones. I think Saw 5 was in there as well. So this guy's got a good history. Tobin Bell is back as John Kramer, and Shawnee Smith is back as Amanda. This is, in actual fact, more of a sort of Saw 1.5 slots in nicely between the first and the second iteration. Both films I am very, very fond of. The rough premise of the film is John Kramer is in the last couple of months of his life with having terminal cancer, and he is duped into going to Mexico and spending a quarter of a million on a miracle cure for cancer. Of course, it was a white elephant, and he's been taking advantage of Tim. And then Mm -hmm. the plotting returns. What a ride. This is such a fun movie. I'm not a Saw aficionado. You know, I've seen the first one, of course, a couple of times. And I know I've seen a few of the others here and there. I've not seen them all. And I'm not familiar with the John Kramer character, right? Throughout the films as I proceed. But this one does such a great job of setting up the conflict, setting up how desperate he is. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He really pulls that off so beautifully. And then the duping, like the scam, that is so topically interesting. I mean, there's so many instances now you see, especially with the internet, elder people getting scammed constantly out of their entire life savings. And this yeah, is another yeah, like just yeah. clever, you know, like a clever way of sort of motivating that societal problem. And then boy, they got fucked. Like, there's just one guy you do not want to fuck with, and they fucked with the wrong yeah, guy. And yeah. so when he comes back, it's such a... I don't know how they keep coming up with these elaborate, beautifully evil, like... Uh, I don't know what you would call them. Yeah, they're traps, right. That whole section is really hard to watch. There's a lot of very graphic stuff in there. On that, Tim, I thought it was Back to the original basics of one, the storytelling, where you had somebody that you were in a way sympathetic to. Yeah. And then at the same time, you had people that you didn't really mind being tortured because they were despicable people, because the motivations became a little bit convoluted. A guy that was under pressure to pull off a bit of a con on people, and then the or whatever it was like or police corruption or something like when you get Mm -hmm. involved in institutional stuff it's like well how complicit can one person be when they've got to feed the family sort of thing and it did become a little bit convoluted but this was like i said back to the original basics of the storytelling and the application the traps Mm -hmm. were visceral because they weren't these incredibly convoluted how can we hurt someone in the most elaborate way? It was very much, this is what you have to do. You have three minutes, and if you succeed, then you go through. And I'm with that. I wouldn't say it was criticism, but it was something that made me think about Kramer's methods, that there is two people that managed to fulfill the traps and escape. And then Kramer, once they fulfilled their role, he's very sympathetic to them. You've earned your freedom. Mm -hmm. Get this person to a doctor immediately. And then another bad actor that's injected into the scenario, and he stops that from happening. And Kramer and Amanda, who the lady that won in the first saw and came back and was a undercover agent kind of thing in the second saw film, she Mm. is emotionally very emotionally driven in the film she wants there was a suggested relationship between her and one of the people that were trapped there was a young girl that was addicted to pills and she was like look just listen to me and i'll get you out of this but just shut the fuck up you're making this harder for yourself do you know what i mean she had a sympathy she just wanted her to survive the traps and when the the later bad actor came in and stopped that person getting medical attention and then in actual fact did kill that character Gabriella, she was the person that greeted him at the hospice, and that was her only role, really. But she was complicit, Mm -hmm. but she was doing it to fund a drug habit. So she was the only one that you could probably have sympathy with. Now, there appeared to be an emotional 
attachment there with with Amanda and mm-hmm. it was emotionally the the film is very emotionally where the the main antagonist who who was obviously the the one that arranged the con and they've made millions upon millions conning people out of the last chance of survival she was pushing people in the traps as well going you can do it you've got three minutes oh yeah let me let me double back a little bit sorry because we got a bit too enthusiastic they all go for it there's a hesitation that costs them maybe a minute of the three minutes that they have but they all go for it and they all just miss out by a little bit and that made me think well there's always going to be a hesitation is that time too little should it have been five minutes because you're almost setting them up to fail when in actual fact they've all committed to the traps and freeing themselves so the process has been fulfilled so i felt a bit like well come on they were seconds away like three minutes it's not a lot of time to to scalp yourself cut through your skull and then pick your brain out like that's like like, that's not enough time to make that decision both the first girl with the leg yeah. And the guy with the brain, like, you're right. They both achieve what they're attempting to do. It's just like, she can't get enough fucking like bone marrow into the jar. Mm. You know, it's like, she's like two seconds away or the guy, he didn't, the brain didn't dissolve fast enough. And so he gets fucked. They did it. Like they did it, bro. Like, yeah, that's they not, did it. that's not yeah. fair. I don't think that isn't fair. As he's all about like fairness. It, yeah, like, exactly. 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 Yeah, my thought. Keep the objective. Like, I have nothing against you. If you achieve the objective, you're welcome to go. And by the way, I've done you a service. You now realize what a fucking shithead you are. Change mm. your ways. Mm. But if they've accomplished that task that is supposed to alter them, mm. right? They've done all the things, just waiting for like the fucking jar to fill. It's not fair. No, it's not fair. And also there was a duplicity of the scale of the traps. There was one where you were getting waterboarded by blood and it's you and somebody else and you can decide how lengthy the waterboarding is and you can flip the switch. And there was another girl that was suspended by her opposing wrist and ankle. And she had to break her ankle and break her, break either a thumb or a wrist to get out of the, to become unbonded from the trap. And I would say that's an easier thing to do because one, it's a blunt force impact that yes, you're going to have to do it more, but it's not fighting against a consistent and prolonged pain and the waterboarding one is kind of well it's uncomfortable but it's not painful and also with the girl who she puts a tourniquet on her upper thigh then with wire she has to saw through her leg on her thigh not at the ankle not at the knee Mm -hmm. through the thickest part of her leg which is horrific enough but then there's the double whammy of having to put a drip inside the bone marrow to drain it out. And I thought she was just one of the inverted commas, you know, actors portraying a part. She wasn't the doctor. She wasn't the the person that ran the company. And yet she's yeah. having to go through all of that. And the time it would take to saw through it, you'd pass out through shock almost, almost immediately. And she's really doing it and her leg falls off and then she's giddy, obviously, through loss of blood. And then she has to put this fucking syringe into her boat, like the middle of, into the end of a boat. Like, I just thought there's no balance or perceptive scale of these traps. And some of them, with the time limit, it did feel almost impossible to escape. The same thing with the brain guy. That is absolutely brutal. Yeah, you know, yeah. almost more so than any of the others. Assuming he gets out of there, like he's just fucking taking his brain out and dissolved it in fucking acid. Okay, you lose the leg. That is extremely traumatic. You can get a fucking prosthetic. Your ankle and your wrist are going to heal. You know, this guy's brain is fucking taken out of his head. You're right. There was a disproportionality to like the role that those people played vis-a-vis yeah, like, yeah, what yeah, they yeah. were what they were required to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, but yeah. It, they were more visceral than some of the silliness, especially in Saw 3D. I think that was maybe Saw 6, maybe Saw 7. I love all the Saw films. I think they're great. I love the way there's an ongoing canon. 
there's little twists mm. at the end, almost like how at the end of a heist film, it's like, this is what really happens. And with that, when... Yeah, right, right. There's a guy that was actually, when he does... A, oh, here's the thing, Tim. You know when Kramer arrives at the retreat and they're giving him a bit of a walk around? Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and they're in this... It's in like an old warehouse thing that's next to this grandiose old school building. And he... He's in this surgical facility and he's just traipsing through it with his outside shoes on. I was like, I know. I was like, yep. come on, guy. At least get yep. him to like wrap it in plastic. I was like, is that meant to be a clue to obviously we know what's going to happen in the film? Is that meant as a little clue to us? Ah, uh, they've forgotten something. Or maybe to him where he should have thought, why am I walking yeah. through a sterilized environment? Right. Right. With totally. my shoes on. And there's a guy there who is, he's just come out of it. He has something on his neck because they surgically removed the tumor and then they have a pharmaceutical road to recovery there afterwards, right? And he's not present in the, in the traps because he takes them all back to, to the location, doesn't he? And that's where he's performing the, the cruelty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, well, why isn't that guy there? So he turns up with a gun, right? And... There's the sort of, do you remember the one with um, Mark Wahlberg when he's the cop and his son's been kidnapped and he says, you have to, you're in control of the traps basically. And there's loads of people that he, that he's encountered through corruption in the police force or something. I can't quite remember which, what it was. And he says, all you have to do is sit here and watch for an hour. Mm. And then he ends up going through the traps to try and get to the end to try and find his son. So he's kind of an observer and also accomplice to the people going through the traps. When at the end, after the hour or two hours or eight hours, whatever it is, a safe opens inside the room where he was sat and his son is in that room with a mask and uh, a big canister of oxygen. So Mm -hmm. it was true. When the guy with the throat cancer turns up mm-hmm. and he said to him, all you have to do is not touch the gun. And I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. You're telling him that's his game. But yeah. he's taking an almighty risk, isn't he? Like there's a Big lot time. of, a bit of happenstance. Like, cause even if, yeah, it just stands in a different part of the room and the overall machination gets unraveled. But you just accept it. Like, it's saw the film has to happen. There was the big reveal at the end. And it's one of the things, I know we've talked about the negatives. This is a fantastic film, thoroughly enjoyable. With Saw, and when you're expecting, with a Saw film, and you're expecting the big reveal at the end, like, you know, as, as yeah. per kind of a heist film, that once you have trotted through the traps, what was the point of the film? If you know what I mean. That was another part of it that it didn't quite nail it for me at the end. It was kind of a little bit clumsy. But That's everything it, yes. before, during, and after was just fucking pristine. It's just such a like taut, sort of like succinct film. I really appreciate that. Like there's not a, like a lot of extra shit. Very, very focused. Mm. As most of the soft films I've seen are, I mean, they're very, very well executed in that respect. They're efficient, succinct, easy to understand, but have, you know, this sort of ongoing canon and these sort of like enduring themes. It's a really nice franchise. This is a good um, entry. Yeah. And with the characters, they all felt lived in and they all felt like they had a verisimilitude about them. Like when they were being tortured, you actually felt it wasn't an avatar being tortured, which is possibly where the IP has fallen down as it's progressed through all the films. I felt pretty quickly and succinctly who each of the characters were, what the motivations were, what were their involvement in fleshed out, if you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. I don't have too much more to say about that, Tim. No, no neither do I. So no. would you send people to either of these movies? Uh, well, certainly not It Lives Inside, unless yeah. they were a cinephile and yeah. is an exercise of futility. But yeah, Saw X, great film. Um, It just continues, with obvious exception, this great run of horror films that we've had in the last 
I don't know, would you say three, four years, something like that? Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been consistently good for a long time, with the exception of that pile of shit we reviewed earlier. Yeah, I would just hundred percent the same. I, I would not send someone to me that follows except for like you said, someone is like a cinephile and be interested in seeing poorly executed horror films. Definitely mm-hmm. saw that stuff. Great, great and, movie. And also when you when you saw it, <clears throat> when you compare no. the two, you have you have a story that was quite a concept that was quite embellished, right? And they could have made a really good film out of the core principle, but the execution was so poor. With Saw, you have a very straightforward concept, but it was executed perfectly. So it just goes to show you, irrespective of where you start, you can finish in very different positions. Right. Yeah. That sums it up for me. Okie dokie. Have you been reading or watching anything other than the specified content, Tim? Any recommendations? No, I haven't, but the specified content is uh, takes a lot of energy. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, if you'd have said, oh, yeah, I've read three of the graphic novels or I've watched this TV series, I was like, what the fuck are you doing that with the amount of content? <laughs> <laughs> no, do, 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 you not understand, do you not understand? <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yes, you've uh, exposed my ruse quite adroitly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tim, do you want to say goodbye to everybody? Yeah, goodbye, everybody. Nice to nice to hear uh, to hear your voice, Matt. We had a good time, and I'm looking forward to next time. So, everybody, have a good week. We'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week from hell. Uh, that <laughs> leaves me your regular co-host, Matt. <laughs> thank you for listening all the way through the episode and indeed to the end if you made it through this far and you're not a regular listener oh that's it's about that time where we shout ashburn and brussels thank you very much for listening again guys we <laughs> are the end pod and we are on apple Podcasts, and google Podcasts, and spotify and soundcloud and anywhere that you listen to podcasts we also have youtube which is the end Pods, one shot. So we have a Twitter and an Instagram, which is the end underscore pod. If you're struggling to find this on listening locations, then try searching for Spank Media, the end. And as always, that always leaves me, only leaves me one more thing to say. We have been, and this is the end. Oh, God. God, I really went off on one there.